0: Our world is a broken place. And the Jews that were living at the time of Jesus, they would have known that. They deeply experienced it every day, and in their heart of hearts, there was a cry for justice. They knew that they needed the Messiah, who was the promised king, the anointed one who God said would come and would right all wrongs. They knew that they needed him to come and to bring justice. But what they didn't know was that he would be crucified. They had no concept for the crucifixion. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 about this. He said this. He said, but we preach Christ, the Messiah. We preach Christ, the Messiah, crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Today, I think we're not so different than those ancient Jews in our longing for justice. But we're also not so different from them in that we don't understand the crucifixion. Why do we need a crucifixion? How does that relate to justice? Well, What I want to show you this morning is that true justice and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ go perfectly together. What we need to recognize this morning is that we will actually never understand the crucifixion until we start to get a handle on how deep the cry for justice goes. That it's a cry for justice that is against you and I. That our human guilt is at the root of the problem. But if we see how the cry for justice is ultimately a cry against human sin, then we will start to see the cross not as foolishness, but as the wisdom of God, as righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So this morning we're going to consider the crucifixion of Jesus in our Jesus series. We've looked at his life, we've looked at his pre-existence even, and now we're coming to the place where Jesus' life ends. What is it all about? And first we're going to look at the crucifixion and ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? And second, we're going to look at the crucifixion narrative itself in the Gospel of Luke and consider what actually happened together. So first, why did Jesus have to die? Well, Jesus had to die because the cry that we hear so often in protests recently, but also in protests in history, the cry, no justice, no peace, is a right cry. It's true. But the reality is that true justice apart from the death of Jesus Christ will mean the death of all of us. And certainly we deny this. We struggle with that statement. What are you talking about, Brand? I'm not the one who's done wrong. We react strongly in our day to accusations of guilt of any kind that are made against us. We have this problem where we tend to disassociate ourselves from the wrong things that are happening in this world. Our problem, as theologian and Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge writes, is this. She says, Our escapist mentality is constantly at work. Readjusting reality to block out the unendurable aspects of life. She's saying that we constantly work to block out genocide and injustice and oppression and evil and infanticide, the killing of millions of unborn children, and even the default selfishness that we exercise towards our roommates and family members, we block all of that out a little bit. We live in kind of the happy, clappy land of everything's fine in this world. Why? Well, because it's actually really hard for us to reconcile the evil in this world with the pervasive idea that you and I have that we're actually fundamentally good. So we try to flatten out and ignore the bad things so we can actually live in that that happy place of bliss. Ignorance is bliss, and certainly ignorance of our involvement in evil is bliss. So we can feel that we are good. It's all fine. Humanity is benign, not evil. We're fine. We're good. But here's the thing. The Bible's a lot more honest than either Instagram or your grandmother when it comes to who you are. The Bible says we're not good at all. The Bible says that humanity stands guilty before God, both individually and corporately because of our sin. I want to unpack this for you. I want you to see in the Bible that this is true. So let's look together at the Bible to see what it says about our guilt and our sin, both individually and corporately. First, individually. We're going to look at the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans really quickly. This is a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. And in the first three chapters of this letter, Paul works to show his audience the depths of human sin. That we are all together guilty before God because of our human sin. But he's a bit sneaky about it. Because the first thing that he does is he describes the sin of the other people. He describes to the Jews the sin of the Gentiles, those other people, in a way that they would have been used to thinking about. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure, Paul. That's right, those people and their sin. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 29 to 32 this. He says, they, that's a comfortable word, not us, not me, but they, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit maliciousness they are gossips and slanders and haters of god insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless though they know god's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them but then you see paul does something really sneaky he gets them nodding along about those are other people's sin. And then he says this as he turns the tables. In Romans 2 verse 1, you have no excuse. You have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges them. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What a perfect verse for us today. We live, too, in a culture that loves to signal our virtue. We're not the evil ones, but, man, we can tell you all about the other evil people. We do this all the time in a variety of ways in our society. I think it's kind of like eating at a moral buffet. And in Kitsilano, we have to think that they're eating at the moral buffet of freshies or tractor. But then as we eat at the moral buffet, we get all the kale from our, our bowl in our teeth, and then we sticker at the people that are next to us for the kale that they have in their teeth without actually having a mirror to look into, examine, and to see ourselves. Without being confronted, that we too are just as guilty. We need someone to confront us. We need Paul to confront us. We need the Bible to confront us. Paul, of course, does this, and he does it some more in Romans chapter 2, verse 3, when he says this. He says, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? He's saying you won't, but God would rightly judge you and I for our sin. And let's be real. I think it's at this point in the Bible's teaching where we struggle because our impulse is saying, "No, that's not true, Brent. You don't really know me. I'm actually a good person. I am not an evil person. I am not sinful. I don't deserve. Surely, I don't deserve the judgment of God against me." But you say I'm a pretty good. Sir, uh, I'm a pretty good person. I have a question for you. By whose standard? How do you measure yourself? Do you measure yourself by your own standard? Don't you think that that you might be a little bit biased as you consider who you are? Wouldn't it be more fair to have that friend, that friend that you used to have, who you slandered or who you hurt? Wouldn't it be more fair for them to evaluate your character? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be more fair to have the coworker that you are constantly impatient with? to actually describe what you're really like? Or wouldn't it be more fair to have the roommate or the family member or the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the spouse who you sinned against in that horrible way? Wouldn't it be more fair for them to evaluate who you are? And even their evaluations still won't measure up to God when he evaluates you when the holy and good and loving God, who has justice and righteousness as a foundation of his throne, according to Psalm 89, when he looks at you and when he measures your life. You may feel good when you evaluate yourself based on your very flexible and biased criteria, but you will not feel good when you stand before a perfect God, a holy God who is love. You know, Isaiah in the Bible, he's one of the prophets in the Bible. He, he wrote the, the large book of Isaiah that we have in the Bible. Uh, he experienced what it was like to stand as a sinner in the presence of God. And in Isaiah 6, he tells us about it. But as he comes into the presence of God, it's like all of a sudden the blinders come off. And the lights go on, and it's far too bright to bear. And he sees himself in contrast with the holy, omnipotent, and loving, and good God— and he falls on his face, and he knows that he must die. He says, woe is me, for I am a sinner. I stand condemned because of my guilt. And all of us are like Isaiah, individually guilty. And Paul says plainly in Romans 6, verse 23, he just says straightforward, he says, the wages of sin is death. So we're individually guilty and sinful and deserving of death, but there's more because we're also corporately guilty. Consider, for example, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And Paul writes this in this passage. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And Notice all the corporate elements. There's a lot here, actually. First, he says in verse 1 that we're not alone in our sinfulness, but that we follow the course of this world. Paul's describing you on a highway of sin, an eight-lane highway that's just packed with people running down the same direction where you might look to the left and it looks like you're hardly moving at all because you're all moving at the same speed, but you're doing it together, going 120 kilometers an hour down the road in sin. But he says more than that, he says in verse 3, that we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. He says we follow our sinful impulses together as human beings. He says that as a human community, we reinforce our sinful behavior together over and over as a community. And he says that we all are children of wrath together as a humanity. He says, like the rest of mankind, we were by nature children of wrath. I mean, this is hard stuff for individualists like us. This is hard stuff for Westerners to get their minds around. Because the Bible speaks of sin not just in individual categories, but also in corporate categories. We struggle with this because of our individuality. But you need to realize that a lot of the world, most of the world around us, does not struggle in the same way. Because they know that the reality is that for human beings, our choices in life don't just depend on us. They also probably depend on the community that we're part of. The reality is that if you're part of the community of sin, of sinful humanity, then you have been first associated with that community and you are guilty and guilty along with that community of the sins of that community and its wrongs. But second, as a member of that community, you also have a default orientation to the same sins of that community. You've been raised in that community. You've been discipled into life, into the way of being a human being by the people around you, having your character reinforced by them in your actions and in your conversations. And according to the Bible, if you are in the human family as descendants of Adam, you are corporately guilty and deserving of death. Paul says, as an Adam, all die in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. You see, human nature in this world are not benign. Christ said, evil is here and it's within you and I, it's within us. And that means something. It means that no justice, no peace is a cry for justice to be meted out against the culprits. And that's you and I because we're all guilty individually and corporately. This again is true for Isaiah. When he stands before God and falls on his face in Isaiah 6, he says two things that are really interesting. He acknowledges his guilt by saying, I am a man of unclean lips. Individual guilt. And uh, I come from a people of unclean lips. And he acknowledges his corporate guilt before God. So if if this is the case for all of us, then what's to be done in order for justice to happen here on earth? I mean, on the one hand, we could demand justice from one another, couldn't we? But what that would look like is just one sinful person demanding justice against another until the justice is paid for, and then that person or their descendants rising up and demanding justice from us until our sin is paid for because we're all sinful. With the result that all of humanity throughout time eventually gangs up on one another and annihilates one another. But even that wouldn't solve our most fundamental problem because our sin isn't only against one another. It's primarily sin and an offense against a holy and a good and a loving God who created this world, who created us. We belong Him to him. He desires our flourishing, and we've turned away from him. And he must pour out his judgment on you and I. So justice must be done. But here's the question. How do we get justice without an apocalypse? How do we get justice without the genocide of humanity? Christ, this question is a question that is all throughout the Bible. It's really the heart of the tension of the narrative of Scripture. That God loves humanity. That he loves the creation that he's made. He delights in it. He calls it good. He loves his creation. He loves us. But on the other hand, God also loves justice. He is just. He always does what is right. On the one hand, he's compassionate and loving, but he will do what is right and perfectly punish sin. So how can that be, and how can humanity still exist in the midst of it? What can be done? This is a tension of scripture. Fleming Rutledge again, she comments, she says, from beginning to end, the holy scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious and so grave, so irremediable from within, that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. And that's exactly what had to happen in city. The tension of God's love and his justice is finally resolved. When God himself, the second person of the Trinity, comes to earth becoming human to die in place of humanity. So he can be just. The one who always punishes sin by pouring out his wrath and his anger and his justice against human sin on a human being, Jesus Christ, in a way that preserves the life of humanity in Jesus so we can be forgiven and loved. So, why did Jesus have to die? Because of you. But he did die. And not because your sin somehow twisted his arm and made him have to go through the unimaginable thing that he experienced on the cross. No, he did die, but he died because he loves you. Because he was willing and he planned to accomplish your redemption, to come and to bring you forgiveness, to bring true justice against your sins that you could be loved and brought home into the loving arms of your father. We see this in John three sixteen to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And look at the heart of God in verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't his desire. He wanted something else. No, he sent Jesus in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, Christ City. there is only one place where true and complete justice against human sin is actually accomplished. There's only one place where God, the one who has justice and righteousness of the foundation of his throne, can say, it's over, it's enough, it's complete, it is finished. And that one place is the cross of Jesus Christ. As Jesus' human blood is poured out so that you and I can be at peace, so that you and I can have peace with God. Now on our second point this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. And what I want to do is I want to take this whole next point, and I want to just read with you what it cost Jesus. I want to read with you the narrative of the crucifixion from Scripture. And I you, I want you to, to stop and reflect on who you are in your sinfulness but who God is in his gracious mercy and his love, that he would come, that Jesus would take upon himself human flesh to undergo this in order to accomplish our redemption, to bring us peace. So we'll start reading in Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. They all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. In Christ City, we need to remember as we read this story that this is not just Jesus who is human, but Jesus who is fully God. God, who's good and just and loving, who's only known joy at the right hand of Father and Spirit, come to earth to experience all of this in our place. And pick up the story in verse 13, and Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Then in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look here and see the heart of Jesus, who even at this moment has compassion and mercy and forgiveness towards sinful humankind. And then in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? The biblical narrative we just read shows us a story of jealousy, of a lack of justice, horrific injustice, of evil, of unbelief. It shows us political and religious authorities uh, who were against Jesus. It shows us Gentiles and Jewish peoples who are against Jesus and who put him to death. But was that it? Is that why Jesus died? No, Peter said, There's a lot more going on. And in Acts 4.28, he says that all of this happened so that whatever your hand and your plan had predestined would take place. So the apostle Peter, much later thinking about the cross of Jesus, says, no, it wasn't just that sinful human beings gained up on Jesus. It was that God had a plan. God had a plan to bring peace to sinful humanity. Jesus died for us to have peace with God according to God's plan. That's what the significance of that line about the temple, uh, having the curtain of the temple torn in two. Because that temple curtain separated humankind from coming into the holy of holies in the temple where God's presence was. Because of our sin, we could not get that close to him. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, the temple curtain is torn so you and I can come and enter into God, reconciled with him, knowing his peace and his love, forgiven and not uh, being guilty by our sin any longer as that sin is fully satisfied in Jesus and his death. You see, Christ City, until we can answer along with G.K. Chesterton, who's the English intellectual and author, we will never understand the cross. And see, one time he was asked in a, in a letter, he said, what is wrong with the world? And he responded with this. He said, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. We are what's wrong with this world. And that's why the cross is necessary so that humanity could experience judgment and survive and be reconciled to God and forgiven as we trust in Jesus. All the weight of our sin, all the evil of our race, all the injustice and the wickedness and the pervasive ignoring of other people, not loving other people, not serving other people, all the sins that we uh, commit, but all the sins that we have committed because we haven't done something good that we ought to have done, all of that poured out on Jesus so that true justice could be done toward him, destroying his humanity on the cross so that we could be preserved, so we could have peace with God. See, the result of all of this is this incredible peace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God that the Bible talks about. Because of the cross, God brings us sinful human prodigals into his family forgiven and accepted and loved. I want you to hear that as we look at three verses as we close. This is true for you because of the cross if you're trusting in Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Or Colossians 1 verse 20. Through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with the blood of his cross. He is reconciling now, and he will reconcile ultimately in the future. But he's drawing us together to himself in peace to the blood of the cross. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this good news because of the cross. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So Christ said, do you know today who you are? Do you hear the cry of justice against you? You see, it is an Instagram where you're going to learn who you are accurately. It isn't from others who are guilty in their sinful humanity, just like you are, where you'll learn the truth about who you really are. Only God's word will speak the truth to you and only God's word will lead you to the cross of Christ. You will learn of the love and the compassion of a good and merciful God towards you, a sinner. Only the cross will show you the depth of who you really are and comfort you with the indescribable love of God as he truly is. As Tim Keller says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. This is the good news of the cross of Christ.